Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Fitz Nation. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to my new email newsletter at fitznation.substack.com. It includes highlights and more thoughts on this podcast and my thoughts on the UFC news of the week. One email every Monday. Also, you can check out clips of the podcast on my YouTube channel. Just search for Brendan Fitzgerald, and I'll see you on YouTube as well. Now time for the show with Court McGee. Welcome to Fitz Nation. Sign me up. Have you ever said that before? You were the first one here. You get me You get me all spiced Where have you ever told that story before? I don't think so. You got a lot out of me that no one else is. I love your show. Nobody really asks these questions. These are good questions to ask. That's what this show is all about. This is Fitz Nation. All right. At long last, Court McGee's on the show. How are you, Court? Hey, man, I'm doing great. Just uh, hanging out on my porch. Oh, man. Well, thanks for making time and thanks for rolling with me. Um, for the audience, we were going to do it a couple of weeks ago and then I had to push it back to last week. And then, Court, I got sick last week. I got home from dropping my kid off at school. I collapsed on the couch. I was like, I cannot do this. Um, and I've been sick all week, but I'm feeling a lot better. And also, I want to say back in 2018, I called your fight in Moncton. And I remember talking to you on the phone that fight week. And that's when I uh, first really got your story from you. And after I hung up, the, I hadn't even started this podcast yet. And I was just like, that's one of the reasons I got to start a podcast is because I talked to you on the phone for like 15 minutes. And I was like, I got to hear this whole thing because your story is incredible. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that that was uh, it's it's always been interesting that you know, based on my history, that's why they put me on the ultimate fighter, uh, because I had the, the story, the heroin overdose, the criminal history, you know, there's a story with it. And then they, they book me in Canada and I'm like, Hey guys, <laughs> like they're not going to let me in Canada. And it took, it took a lot of work to get into Canada. The first time, at least I had like the system down, and I had everything that I needed because it was, it's a lot of paperwork to get into Canada. Wow. Because it, because you've had some arrests and stuff or just, yeah, because of the criminal history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Um, but I want to get to the, before that and your early life, like you were already a wrestler. It's not like you found uh, combat sports to get out of it. It certainly helped you out of it, but your early life and, and what was that like? Like, what were you like as a teenager? Well, I, I started out, um, th there was an incident that happened. I, I was left with my aunt and uncle and uh, three of my cousins and my brother at an amusement park, and they were well-traveled. There was one older cousin that was, I don't know, I was probably like maybe six, five, six, maybe seven, and the oldest cousin was like 12 or 13, and um, I got separated from that group. And I hid behind a garbage can. Uh, I ended up like getting lost for several hours. They had to send people out to find me because they thought I was, you know, whatever. I was a little kid that was, you know, missing. And it was really traumatic. And I don't specifically remember it. The only thing that I really remember is it was near a hot dog stand. And the smell of ketchup, mayo, mustard still to this day bothers me. So I don't eat like those condiments specifically because of that. But what happened was I had like separation anxiety. I noticed because I was in elementary school, I, I have vivid memories still to this day of like being really nervous, 
really scared. And then like, Hey, I need to use the restroom. And I'd go into the restroom and I would just hide, you know? And of course the teacher was like, where's court at, you know? And then they would come talk to me. And of course, you know, I'd have to tell my parents that I got scared and I, I was, you know, I went to the bathroom and then my stomach started hurting. So they put me into some therapy and they, you know, asked a bunch of questions like, had you been molested or had, you know, and they couldn't come up with anything, but after some therapy sessions and then some, uh, like anti, uh, like depression medication, even at that young age, uh, they, from a few suggestions, they decided to put me in martial arts because they thought it would build self-confidence and, you know, long story short, here I am like 30 years later, um, in martial arts, but it had a profound effect on me. So I started martial arts at a young age and it was a traditional karate, like a Taekwondo based, uh, it's called Shintoshi karate. Mm-hmm. There's lots of forms and katas and one steps and things like that. Just a traditional karate. And I loved the sparring. I, I loved everything about it. And one of the instructors ended up being one of the first, uh, no holds barred or mixed martial arts fighting promotions in the state. And up until recently was the longest running. Uh, had like the most fights It fights every weekend for years and years and years called the ultimate combat experience. And he was one of my instructors and him and my dad got along pretty well. And he had suggested getting me into wrestling. So I was introduced to wrestling uh, as a peewee. And I did a couple of seasons of that. And that was my first introduction to martial arts, but I played like one season of T-ball. But outside of that, I've only been in, combative sports my whole life i was just drawn to them i wasn't like a team uh not necessarily not a team player but i didn't gravitate towards team sports and i didn't grow up in a family where we watched you know we didn't watch we didn't have a football team we didn't watch baseball we didn't we we didn't watch sports we usually did like you know home home projects home activities work we had a small uh, acreage not too far from our house where our grandparents lived and we would work on the farm and you know, irrigate really early in the morning and trim trees and dig ditches and, you know, prune trees. And just like, uh, that was kind of our family stuff, but my dad's a temperate beer drinker. So he always had beer around and he would have, you know, a few beers here and there when he was working, he would have beer after work. Um, there was no abuse, no neglect in my household, but at a pretty young age, you know, during middle school, um, you know, it was like we would sneak into dad's beer when we were camping and the effect was so elusive that, uh, I found that I couldn't stop or limit the amount once I started. And that was early. So that was at, you know, 12, 13 years old, sn- sneaking into dad's beer. Wow. And in middle school, like there was a few altercations. Um, I found that I could not read very well. And I could attain grades, but I had to learn how to cheat and not get caught. And I didn't find out until years and years later that I had a severe case of dyslexia and I was colorblind. So I had challenging uh, comprehending, you know, like my reading comprehension was really low. My vocabulary was uh, sufficient. Everything else was good. I just couldn't get through literature. And so I found it very challenging in school. So I had to start cheating. And you know, it's like, I didn't, I was like every other middle school, high school kid. Like I I didn't know who my group was. I liked skateboarding. Um, and I took that to extreme. 
I, you know, it's like being, being a person in long-term recovery, identifying as a drug addict and alcoholic, I find that my community of people, we kind of run to extremes. And so I'm either all in or all out. And, um, everything I did, I took to the next level. The martial arts started to fade off because I realized like, well, this karate stuff's pretty cool, but when you get in a wrestling room, like it obviously doesn't work when you get taken down. And one of the instructors, you know, he was a kickboxer. He started that promotion. He had one of the first guys who brought jujitsu to the United States. He had some interactions with Pedro Sauer. One of the guys that trained with him kind of separated off and he was a lawyer. And so he was the lawyer for that guy and he had him in his gym. So we would go to these karate events. And then after he would like, Hey, you want to learn a Kimura? And I'm like, well, what the hell's that? You know? And I'd get on there and I'd learn a Kimura. And that, and that was at a young, you know, that was in the, in the mid nineties. And so, and, and not a lot of people know, but well, a lot of people do know, but you know, jujitsu started in Southern California and then in, in Provo, Utah, that's where Pedro Sauer came. Wow. I didn't know and that. So, yeah. Yeah. So there was like a Mecca of jujitsu long before it was really a thing. Um, and, I, you know, I was introduced to that guy. I learned some of those things. And then, you know, the UFC came around uh, in the early 2000s. You know, well, I mean, yeah, the ultimate. I know what the you ultimate. Mean, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, but, um, you know, like the drinking took a bigger role, especially during summers uh, in, in like middle school, the end towards the end of middle school and early high school. And, you know, the same people that I, I had one older brother, um, you know, and his friends were drinking at home. They were experimenting with smoking pot, you know, taking pills. And so I found that as my crowd. And, you know, it's like I was the one that kind of kept drinking after people stopped. I was the one that couldn't put it down. And then, you know, it was fun at first and then it was fun with consequences and then it was just all consequences. So I had a couple of rests during the summer my parents really put it to me. It was really important that we graduated high school and either went to college or found a career. And that's kind of what they both did. You know, one went to college for a day, decided it wasn't for them, went to work, worked as a mechanic on Hill Air Force Base, you know, made a great living um, and retired after 35 years. And then my mom, she went back to school when I was about 12 or 13 and became a nurse, a registered nurse, and then started nursing. And she really took off and became a charge nurse. And it's like, I, I wasn't thinking about that, but right around that time, I saw Mark Kerr, the smashing machine. It was a documentary about Mark Kerr, this guy, he was a couple time, all American, a freestyle wrestler. He took it to a high level and he was competing in pride. And, you know, when I was left at that amusement park, um, or separated from the group, um, once I found martial arts, I, I figured as long as I could become the baddest dude I knew, then I would never be hurt. Right. I would be safe. And that's the way I thought. And so I really took to the martial arts and it was because I felt safe, right. Because I could handle myself and, you know, with the introduction to this guy, Mike Stidham and the, 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 the jujitsu, he had some boxers in there. Uh, uh, there's a big Polynesian culture in Utah. And there was these couple of boxers who were phenomenal boxers. And, um, I, I started, uh, 
I started bought and I just, I just took to it. And then I saw Mark Kerr, the smashing machine. And I thought if I could become the baddest motherfucker on the planet, then I would never get hurt and nobody would ever, you know, it's like, that would take care of my problem. Um, you know, I got into like eighth grade. I started wrestling by ninth grade. I'd picked up in the high school. We had a great team and a great, tough, really tough coach. And, you know, I made the varsity team my, my sophomore year. I, I made it to the state tournament. My junior year, I placed in the state tournament. My senior year, I only lost to two kids. And um, I ended up becoming one of the top wrestlers in my weight division in the state with the promise of going to college and uh, wrestling in college. But in the year 2003, all the scholarships were taken because of Title IX, Women's and Men's Fairness and Sports. So I lost my scholarship. And, you know, it's like I had a girlfriend. We were pretty serious. The only thing was she was uh, religious and I wasn't religious. So there was a little difference there. Um, she wanted to go to college and I wanted to go to college and wrestle. But I found that I lost my scholarship. Not to mention inside, I knew I wouldn't make it in college because I couldn't read. I couldn't get through literature and I wasn't able to tell anybody that I felt like I would be looked down upon. Plus I graduated high school, like as a commended graduate. So I almost, you know, it's like a, almost a 3.5 cumulative GPA. And I, I did well, but I knew inside that I cheated to get those grades. And so I knew, you know, it was like, I was pretending to be somebody I, I wasn't. And I wanted to wrestle because I saw Mark Kerr was a wrestler and I figured if I could take it as far as I could, then that would give me an advantage once I got a little older and started competing. And my goal was to become, you know, a UFC fighter or a pride fighter, mm-hmm. uh, fighting at the highest level in the world. Um, and I just like, I was at a loss. I was at an absolute loss. By the time I graduated high school, I I did well in school because I showed up every day. I did all the busy work and then whatever I had to do to cheat, I would cheat. And, um, I was just, you know, like most high school students, I was confused. I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. My brother went to college close. So I decided I'll follow him. I went into criminal justice, um, and I took some nutrition courses. I, I took a full load of courses and I dropped out of more than more than half of them. And I, I wasn't managing. And by that time, I had got into an accident and I shattered my my collarbone. And Car accident? No, it was I was drinking and uh, I had already had a DUI. And so I was on a go-ped and I figured I wouldn't get arrested if I was on my go-ped. I crashed my go-ped like on this uh, in a curb um and smashed my collarbone uh was concussed uh got messed up pretty bad i was prescribed pain pills then i found out two or three weeks later that i i got a second opinion because it was so painful and they had to do like surgery to repair it and then i was prescribed more pain pills and then they had a plate in there and then they took the plate out after a couple of months and i was prescribed more pain pills and for me it was like I was telling him I was in pain. I was in pain. I was taking the pain pills for the pain. But on the other side of it, I had so many repercussions from the drinking that I tried to stop, but I found that I couldn't, but I could take pain pills and kind of had the same effect. You know, I could catch a buzz and nobody could smell it. And I thought nobody could tell. 
basically like 18 months after graduating high school and six months after dropping out of my first year of college, um, I had been arrested, um, around 40 times. Uh, I went from, you know, almost a straight A student going to college, uh, working part-time at, a at, a it was a Sam's club, like earning a little bit of money, having, ha- having my college taken care of, like, just like an average as average as any person in the state uh, or in the country. Sure. And what I had was this craving beyond my mental control. I could not stop. I mixed the pain pills of the alcohol. And like I said, 18 months after graduating high school and six months after dropping out of, of college, um, I had a fatal overdose on heroin. Uh, and I just systematically lost everything, the connection, the two friends that I had left. Um, the only thing we had in common was we were using drugs and my girlfriend, uh, of about three years or so she had had enough and she decided she was going to leave. So she moved to Russia to teach English. So she really left. Um, and I didn't have anybody left. I felt like she was my last, you know, she was my rock. She was the one I could complain to that would understand, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, uh, why do I keep getting arrested? You know? And it's like, well, cause you're drunk while you're driving. That's why you get arrested, you know? And yeah, I had all these charges and charges in a plea in advance and all these court dates and just trying to manage that stuff. And at a loss, like my athletic career was done. Um, there was no prospect for me to go into mixed martial arts. I couldn't even hardly hold a job. I would have to leave the job before I got fired because I was, I knew I was a bad employee. You know, it's like some of my last experiences at that job was I was introduced to cocaine and I bought it essentially to sell it to somebody to make money because I was burning through money, buying drugs. And I did one little tiny line and I ended up doing like $300 worth of cocaine over the next five hours and was up for two days. Like once I started anything, I couldn't stop. I couldn't just take one pain pill. I had to take all the pain pills. Yeah. Can we, can we unpack that? There's a ton there. This is why Corey, you you take off, you have an an insane story. Can we all have our, um, we all have our traumas or reasons why we are how we are. And I think it's very interesting that yours comes from when you were so young. Um, why do you think that amusement park thing affected you so much to the point where you really thought that you'd have to take care of yourself, defend yourself, be put in these positions that were um, very scary, even though you had both parents in the house, you had an upbringing, you got good grades in school, all those things were not putting you in danger. And yet your kind of trauma that stuck with you was I might be in danger and I have to be able to take care of that. Yeah. I think that was my coping mechanism. So, and, and I'm only, and I'm not like, I'm not a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I've had lots of experience working with people that struggle with addiction, but I think my coping mechanism was I was alone and afraid all of a sudden now growing up, like I never forgot that. And I thought no matter where I'm at, if I'm the baddest dude in the room, then I'll never have that feeling again. And so once I found the martial arts, right, it's like, 
I would look around and I would notice that like the katas, the forms were like kind of cool to go through or whatever, but Hey, when we're doing sparring, these katas aren't helping me once I'm sparring and you'd be able to hit the guy first. And my brother, he bought me a book and I wasn't able to really get through the literature, but I went through the pictures and I would read little pieces and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of modern bodybuilding. And I would go through and there, there was portions in there. And I still remember them to this day. Um, like uh, building a foundation, right? For these bodybuilders, right? And it was Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about it, how he had a lacking muscle group. His calves were small or something. So he did essentially 660 one-hour workouts, so, something like that. I, I, don't quote me specifically, but he, did, he took like 600 workouts to build his calves. And I went through that and I was like, okay, well... I want to build a foundation too. So I started, you know, I got these little tiny weights um, and I started doing the basic like strength train, deadlifts, squats, back squats, bench, bench press, you know, shoulder, all the little things like, okay, well, I, I started like doing those things and I just got myself lost into it. And I did the same thing with the martial arts. And then once I was introduced to that Mike Stidham guy, I saw that he was a kickboxer. And then those, uh, a couple of boxers, like I, I went and I found boxing gloves and I would go to this karate demonstration thing. I would do the stuff that we do. Then after I'd go over to the boxers and hey, show me how to put these gloves on. And I would watch them work the bag. And so I'd go over and mimic what they were doing on the bag. And then I was introduced to this Mike Colby guy. And he's like, well, you want to learn an Americana? And I remember the Americana. I remember what he did. I watched him do it. I had him do it to me. Then I did it to people. And then I would come home and I would show my friends, you know, I would Oh, look at this and look at, you know, and then pretty soon I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to mix that. And then I started wrestling. Right. And man, it, it's like, I would get in my karate stance, you know, like I was wrestling and, and then I would get taken down with a double leg. And so pretty soon I was like, okay, well, I got to learn the double leg so I can learn how to defend the double leg. And then I would write these things down. And it's like, that was my coping mechanism was if, if I ever found myself alone, I would be okay as long as I knew I could take care of myself. And I think, you know, looking at that now, like, I think it's great if you know how to take care of yourself. As a matter of fact, I think it's uh, uh, a, a, um, I think it's, it's very valuable to know how to take care of yourself. But for me, that was my coping mechanism. Um, you know, and, and for years I took antidepressants and for years I didn't know who I was. And a lot of people don't know who they are. You know, it's like a process of learning who you are. And today I've become, you know, the professional athlete that I think my kids would look up to. Um, and I've become a person I never thought I would be, but I didn't find that until a couple years later until, you know, roughly six to seven months after the fatal overdose. Right. You know, and yeah. it's, it's kind of like, I think that was my coping mechanism. And I know I've done lots of interviews and some of the interviews are like mixed martial arts saved your life. And it, it didn't really save my life early on. It helped me feel um, secure, but also too, it caused a lot of issues because uh, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder, you know, it was like, and I, I wanted to test those things out, but there's rules, 
there's laws. And so, you know, mix some drugs and alcohol with that. And now I can't differentiate the truth from false. And I don't have any game plan of where I need to go, you know, based on following my parents' example, it was like, go to work, show up every day, do your best, you know? And like, but I got to a point where I had to have, you know, like a little bit of meth or a little bit of Adderall to get going. And then I had to have, you know, uh, some pain pills to get rid of the headache because of the alcohol that I drank the night before, you know, and then, and then pretty soon it was like, when I couldn't pay for Oxycontin anymore, because I was during the, like the, like the Oxycontin crisis in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. and it was easily accessible, and I couldn't afford it anymore. So what did I turn to at the suggestion of a friend, you know, uh, hey, we'll try this heroin. So I, I snorted heroin a couple of times, and then I didn't find the high that was good enough. And so what did I do? I took it a little further, and I shot up for the first time. And then after doing that, it was kind of like, I went from shooting up, you know, that first time to just a couple of days later, I was shooting up like 10 or 15 times a day, trying to just do a little bit at a time to manage and maintain until I lost my job. Then I had to go find another job and I had to find a job where they wouldn't piss test me. And then I, you know, and it's like, I had to work everything around my addiction and, and that's the problem. It's like the martial arts went out the door. Um, there was absolutely no uh, connection with a higher power. You know, I would pray if I was in trouble or whatever. Um, there was, there was, there was little to no. Like I didn't have any serenity whatsoever. Um, there was no spirituality. There was just I was in crisis all the time. And then, you know, the night that I overdosed, it's like. I shot up just a little bit too much, or maybe it was a little too pure, or maybe it was mixed with some fentanyl. I, I'm not sure, but I overdosed. Uh, my cousin came in luckily and found me, called 911. Her friend started CPR. Uh, the ambulance got there. They called my parents. My mom and dad showed up. They, they were only a few minutes away. You know, the ambulance started CPR and defibrillations. And then one of the officers was an undercover narcotics officer, and he recognized the name because he had arrested me before for a DUI and a few other things. And so he came essentially, uh, and he found the syringe that I had overdosed on. It had fallen between like the linoleum and the wall. And, and my little kit of heroin was in my glass case and it was hid and it was sitting on the table. And so, and there was no drugs in the trailer. There was, you know, it was like, but had he had not found that and and called and said, hey, it's a heroin overdose, they wouldn't have known to, you know, use Narcolone and reverse the effects. And so they did that. And, you know, they induced me into a coma. And I'm not sure how long I was in the coma for, but I came out of it on my own. And I was just sitting in this hospital bed thinking like, what the hell happened? And why does my chest hurt? And somebody brought my friend in and I didn't want to talk to him. I'd flashed back to years before I thought we were in an argument, like I was totally confused. And then the next person that came in was this, uh, he was a licensed clinical social worker, but he had 20 years of sobriety. He was a former heroin addict and he had 20 years of recovery. And it's like, he spoke my language. Like I, I, he, he told me his experience. He told me how he stopped drinking and using 
and how he's living today, but how he felt while he was using. And I immediately knew and trusted him. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy knows where I've been. And it's like, he was that role model with a solution. And he made a few suggestions. Hey, um, I want you to go to residential inpatient treatment and I'll help you get it signed and get, get you in there and get a bed for you. They're going to take you to 12-step meetings. I want you to go on those 12-step meetings and I want you to listen to how people feel, not how they look. Don't look at how the differences, look at the similarities. And that's exactly what I did. I went to the treatment center. I was in the psych ward for a couple of weeks. And then I went to my first 12-step meeting and somebody stood up and they essentially told my story. I was like, oh my gosh, this person's just like me. And you know, he was a couple of years older than me. And I went up and I got his number and I started calling him and he made suggestions. And I had three relapses. I had once when I was in treatment, somebody gave me a pill and I just took it before I even knew what had happened. And I restarted and said, I'm a newcomer again and started over. And then three or four days after, you know, I, I was uh, diagnosed with ADHD. I, I did some online test that they had me do and you know, it's like, oh, you're ADHD and we got to get you some ADHD medication, but we'll go the non-narcotic version or the non-controlled substance version. And I got out and of course I had anxiety. And one of the girls that was there was like, well, I have some Klonopin, which is a central nervous system. It's a benzodiazepine. So of course, self-diagnosed, I'm like, well, I'll take one of those. And she's like, I have Adderall too. No, I have ADHD. And so I took those. And before I knew it, I was loaded. And I had to restart. It was just one time. And now, and how I had does to that? Restart. Let me just. How does how does that feel when you take like Adderall? When you say I was loaded, a lot of people would say, "Yeah, but not like heroin." So, yeah. for, for you, why do you call that a relapse? And what what's the feeling after being a severe addict, and then and then doing those pills that a lot of people get prescribed? So, after listening to stories of people in recovery. I had recognized that it didn't necessarily matter what I was taking. It was once you started, you couldn't stop or limit the amount. And then came severe consequences. And I was like, okay, that's exactly what happened to me. That is exactly what happened to me. Like there's one time when I had two weeks of sobriety, right? It was my, it was like, I had this moment of clarity and I had been kicked out of my house. I, I called my parents and I said, hey, guys, I'm, I'm sick. I'm coming off of these drugs. I got honest with them. And they said, we'll let you stay at our house for a couple of days. And I did. I went downstairs in their basement and I just sweat and curled up in a ball for two days. I went through withdrawals and then I got offered a job. And I went and I started to work and I was introduced to somebody and got offered a career in uh, excavation. I started that job. I had felt better than I'd ever felt. I, I like my third day on the job, I ran a jackhammer for like 10 hours and I was so excited. Like I felt all this energy and rejuvenated and the boss who hired me or the superintendent, he was like, man, if you work like this, you'll go places in this company. And all of a sudden I was like, this is my ticket. This is what I'm going to do. I met another guy. He was like, oh yeah, I got a surveying degree. They paid for it. I make six figures a year. I thought, you know what? Okay. I lost the wrestling. I lost the MMA. I'm not lifting weights, but maybe this is my shot. Maybe this is my shot to make it. I feel good. I feel better than I've ever felt. And after two weeks, I got a call from one of those couple of friends that I had. 
And he said, Hey, my girlfriend just had a baby and I have a couple of Percocet, which is the same active ingredient is in Oxycontin. It's oxycodone. And I said, no, absolutely not. I said, I'm completely sober. I'm not even drinking beer. And he said, wow, man, I'm proud of you. You know? And I said, thanks dude. All right. Peace out. Hung up the phone. And by five o'clock that night, when I got off work, I said, okay, I'm just going to take two of those pills and take the edge off. Uh, plus I'm in a lot of pain from like running the jackhammer. Right. So I went over to his house with a solemn oath to only take two. I took those two and I immediately came back, bought the rest of the prescription. And within four months, I had lost that job. I had wrecked my vehicle. I got kicked out of my apartment. I was homeless. I had no vehicle. I lost my job. And I begged my dad to take me to the office where I was working. And, and, and I admitted that I had a problem with alcohol. And they said, we don't have any room for you. We're going to have to let you go. But if you get sober, we would love to have you back. And within four or five weeks, I had the fatal overdose on heroin. So it just, wow. So it, two it pain pills. So quick. Yep. yep. So you fast forward after I go to treatment, you know, it's like I got two weeks, I relapsed, right? And it was the one pill. And I knew if I started, I, I would, could always rewind back to that. Oh, if I just take two, look what happened, right? Yeah. It was severe consequences. So by taking, say, one Adderall that's not my prescription, that could trigger the allergy of addiction and cause me to want, okay, well, now nah, I took a couple of pills and maybe I'll have some beer. And then the beer goes to alcohol. Then the alcohol goes to, you know, oh, well, this person has some Xanax. And then pretty soon I'm taking four or five milligrams of Xanax and driving, you know, and then the next thing, you know, it's like, well, I'm super tired from drinking all night. I need some pain pills to get rid of that, you know, and then it's just that cycle of, yeah. and so that was considered a relapse. Then after that, I started over again and I got into a relationship with a girl I had no business being in. And I started attending meetings regularly. I went to get my driver's license and I found out that I had felony drug charges. So I had, to, I had to face that. And I just had all these consequences. I didn't get a job. Um, I went and attended the high school I graduated from. I was told to do service work. I joined and tried to help with the wrestling team. And that sparked my interest in mixed martial arts. And I went to a jujitsu gym. I was teaching wrestling. I started doing that. Um, I started training, started punching the bag. And then all of a sudden it was like, I was re re enthralled, like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Right. And the girl that I was dating, she was several years older than me. Um, she had been divorced. She had a little bit of money. And she took me to UFC 57. It was Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell three. And this is in, in uh, 2005. And it might've been early 2006, but either way, she took me to Vegas. And, and here's the thing is I wasn't supposed to leave the state because I had felony drug charges, you know, and I had other charges that I was dealing with and paying fines on. And I went to Las Vegas. Um, I remember sitting in the nosebleed sections and, you know, I just celebrated a sober 21st birthday. I was 20 when I got sober and, uh, a guy sitting next to me because I have cauliflower ear from yeah. my wrestling. And uh, he said, Hey, are you a fighter? You look familiar. And I lied through my teeth. I was like, Oh yeah, you'll see me out here in a couple of years, you know? And like, I watched the fight and I was there rooting for Randy because Randy was the wrestler. Right. 
Yeah. And I was a Chuck fan too. Of course, like that was the height of his career. And he ended up knocking out Randy after that fight was over. Um, she had purchased me a long Island iced tea. She was also in recovery, but she had relapsed and she was hiding it. And so she said, okay, well, I already drank. It's not out of control, but if you have a drink with me, maybe tomorrow we'll start over. And I remember I slid the Long Island iced tea like right here and I put it up to my lips and I set it down and I thought like I did when that kid gave me the two pain pills, I am not making a wise decision. And she said, well, it already touched your lips. You might as well drink it. And for me, that was good enough. And I'm not looking down on her. She didn't make me drink, right? I was the one that took the drink. And so I said, okay. And I took that drink and that led to the worst two weeks in one day of my life. Um, four days later, I ended up in Iowa with no pants on looking for meth. Um, I got into a fight at a party. I drove drunk. I, I made so many mistakes. Like, uh, it was the, literally the worst two weeks in one day of my life. And I showed up at my parents' house. I begged to let me, uh, let, let me in. They thought I was sober. And of course I was a mess. And I said, I just need a day to figure this out. Um, I went downstairs and I waited for my parents to fall asleep. And I hadn't lived with them for several years. And I knew my dad, he was a beer drinker. Uh, I knew he hid his beer in his room. So I actually snuck upstairs, snuck into his room, snuck a beer out of his closet, went back downstairs, opened the beer up. And I mean, like I'm an adult and I opened the beer up and I set it down and I heard his footsteps above me coming down the stairs and I didn't want to hide it. I just looked at him and I mean, he was like, basically like right there. And I just looked at him. And I looked at the clock. It was 1.30 in the morning. It was April 16th, 2006. And he said, son, I thought you weren't supposed to drink. And like, I put the beer down and I have not had a drink or drug since. And that was like 5,794, 95 days ago. Yeah. So that's almost 16 years ago, man. Wow. So I put it down and I yeah. was done. Yeah. I, I should have started the interview with asking you how many days, because that always strikes me too. It was like, I remember on that day in Moncton or that when I talked to you on the yep. phone, you told me how many thousands of days it had been, yep. um, since you were sober and, um, have you ever to go big picture? And then I want to go right back to that point in the story. Have you ever put your finger on what led to the addictive overall behavior? Why, when you were 12, 13, did you have to drink all the beer or the most? And why have you never been able to, to say when? You know, I don't think it's circumstances. I don't think it was how I was raised. Um, I've worked with like clinical social workers and, you know, it's like a lot of times they try to figure out, you know, oh, well, maybe it was being left at the amusement park or maybe, may, you know, that that's your coping mechanism or, um, and, uh, and the only thing that I can honestly come up with is I think the disease of addiction was inherent in my personality before I took that first drink or was prescribed that first pill. I think I had it already. And I think by being prescribed, say Adderall, or being prescribed those pain pills, 
I think once I took them, that feeling was so elusive that I had to have it again. And it, at, at, at whatever cost I was going to get it to secure that feeling. And I think I just had the disease of addiction that was inherent in my personality. I think I already had it. I think I was predispositioned. Um, that's the only thing I can come up with because like, you know, it does run in my family. I see, you know, I have cousins, I had uh, great grandparents, um, you know, distant relatives that struggle with addiction. And so I think maybe genetically I was predispositioned to, to have that. And I'm, I'm not sure I, you know, I, I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you exactly, but that's the best thing that I can come up with. Yeah. Um, so you have all these incredible experiences, incredibly bad, and you're only a 21 year old at this time. And your dad, what was it about that experience? Why was so, that the last one? It's wild. I wish I had the picture to show you, but so my, my grandfather, he was a Lieutenant Colonel. He was a pilot. Um, he had a bad alcoholic dad. Um, he, he flew in four wars. Like he was the coolest. I looked up to him the most. Um, he, he kind of had a temper, but immediately after he would like get frustrated or mad or like go on this rant and where he would swear, he would, you know, like, Oh, I'm sorry. And are you guys hungry? And like, he would, you know, it was like, it was this, this long running joke. Like, uh, me and my brother have now it's kind of like after we, you know, like get frustrated or whatever, or talk about our dad, we, we, you know, or our grandfather, it's like, he would get frustrated. He would blow up, like, you know, swear a whole bunch. And then he'd be like, I'm sorry, boys, are you hungry? And like, you know, he would feed us. And like, that was, that was it. But it's like, I always looked up to my grandfather and he had passed a few years before that he passed like my sophomore year in high school. So like in 2000 or 2001, maybe 99, 2000. And, um, when I saw my dad at the bottom of the stairs, looking at me, I had this, this, uh, epiphany, um, of like my grandfather looking at me too. Now, I had been asked when I was pronounced clinically dead, right? So they did CPR and defibrillations for like roughly off and on for like anywhere from eight to 16 minutes. And I don't know the story exactly. Um, they broke my sternum, broke my ribs, but either way they were providing oxygen to my brain, but I had no heartbeat and, until they administered Narcolone and reversed the effects. So when I died, I had this, this vision of my grandfather just with his glasses tilted, like looking at me disappointed. And I remember he had great big hands and they were like folded right here like this. And so when I saw my dad and he said, I thought you weren't supposed to drink. It's like, I saw my grandfather looking at me disappointed when I had passed away. And so it's like, I had this, this, this vision and you know, it was powerful. And I knew when I put that beer down, I knew I was done. I knew I was done and it was time to get honest. And that was it. I set that beer down and I was done. And I mean, done. I was like, you know what? I don't care if I have to go to prison. I don't care what it takes. I'm not picking up another drink or drug today at all. And then that's where it started. You know, and yeah. part of that was 
the 12 step meetings, you know, for today, we're not going to drink or use, it can be as bad as it can or whatever, but today we're not going to drink and use. And so I just knew I was done for that day. The following day, I called the district attorney at the time and I turned myself in. I said, Hey, I left the state. I did this. I did this. I used this substance. And she cut me off and she said, make it here on Friday. Uh, and it was a Monday. And, um, she said, make it here on Friday sober and we'll get this figured out. And I was like, I don't, there's no telling I can make it till Friday. Uh, Wednesday came along and my dad introduced me to a guy who owned a small plumbing company. And he said, maybe you ought to go apply for a job. And I was, I wasn't too sure about it, but I said, okay, thanks dad. And I showed up to that office. You know, I had no vehicle. I had nothing. I, I thought I was, I had enough charges to go to prison. So I, I thought I was going to go to prison and I sat down and I just was honest with the guy. I said, Hey, honestly, you probably don't want to hire me. I said, I'm, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic, and I've only got a couple of days sober. I got to attend these 12 step meetings. I know for a fact I'm going to be on paper and I'm probably going to have to be doing UAs and there's a good chance that I'll go to prison. And he said, great. Sounds like we can go to meetings together. You're hired. And I was like blown away. Like, oh my gosh. Uh, okay. And so I showed up to my meeting with the, the, the lady on Friday and mm -hmm. I said, uh, I got a job and I'm sober still. Um, but I don't think I can stay sober out here. And I said, I think prison is probably my best bet. And so essentially I was asking to go to prison and she saw something into me that I didn't see in myself. Um, and she said, okay, well, I'm going to send you to this program that's in Ogden. Uh, it's all guys that are fresh out of the state penitentiary. And I want you to go there every Friday night for a couple hours. And then I want you to attend two self-help meetings a week. And I will give you uh, a number to call. And basically she lined me out. So I had a, a color she gave me. And so I had to go provide clean UAs, clean piss tests mm -hmm. for the state of Utah. And then she put all those charges in a plea in abeyance. And as long as I followed that plea in abeyance by going to that, that court mandated class and then the two 12 step classes a week and kept a job, then I, you know, for however long, as long as I followed those rules, then I wouldn't go to prison. And so I went to that first meeting on a Friday night and I just sat around in a group full of guys that just got out of prison. And after listening to them, I thought, oh my gosh, I have the same charges as these guys. I feel the same way as these guys. The only thing is I wasn't separated from the community for several years. And all these guys have much more challenges. They have so many more challenges than me. Like they hadn't worked. They hadn't been a part of society. And, and they had, you know, there was one guy that had been locked up for like off and on for like 20 years and he'd never even been in a Walmart. And I, I took him fishing one time and we stopped, uh, uh, to pick up some, some worms from Walmart. And he like looked at me and he kept his seatbelt on and he was like, is it okay if I come in? And I'm like, yeah. And I didn't, it didn't dawn on me at the time, but like he had to ask to do things. He like, he was, he was institutionalized Yeah, and he was blown away when he walked in there. There was so many people and so much stuff. And he's like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm so used to just living in this closet. And you know, with a bed and a toilet and a sink and a little desk. And now I have all of this stuff and I'm scared. And I just thought like, oh my gosh. So I realized that I, 
I had a lot of opportunity. I sat around, I made a few friends in there. I attended my meetings regularly. I started working regularly and I went right back to the high school wrestlers that I was working with. And I started working with those guys. And then I went to a jujitsu gym and I couldn't pay, but I said, I can teach you a double leg, a high crotch, a head outside single, a single leg, a sweep single. I can teach you how to fit in on these if you teach me jujitsu. And so um, I just, uh, that's where it started. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's where it started. Now, <clears throat> um, there's some something along the line, some quote that you gave somebody was, I think this was the thing where you found yourself in Iowa. Um, but basically you kind of looked at your life and you said, that's who I thought I was like a strung out drug addict. What, how would you describe the challenge of changing who you think you are? Oh, so the, the challenge of changing who I think I am, right. It's like, I, I grew up in a society where. I felt like I didn't fit in and I needed to do whatever to fit in with this person, fit in with that person. I had to lie. I had to cheat. I had to pretend. Right. And it's like, I became whoever I needed to become to get acceptance from this person. And then, you know, the, the drinking, the using, it kind of freed me from that. And I felt like I could be myself, which is not necessarily true. You know, it's, you, you just end up loaded. And then obviously it didn't work for me. Like I couldn't, I, I didn't fit society. I, I couldn't show up to work on time. And so I had no idea who I was. So it's kind of like, I met some people, I was introduced to the 12 step program and there's 12 steps. Right. And so ideally it's like those 12 steps are a foundation in helping me build a relationship with a higher power. And I started those and I started building a relationship with a higher power. Now in, in doing that, it's like I had these daily rituals that I needed to do just a little bit of reading, right? A little bit of prayer, a little bit of meditation. And then I had to attend these meetings regularly and then surround myself with people in long-term recovery. And in doing that, you see these people go through challenging things. Uh, you see them go through exciting things, job changes, the loss of marriages, the loss of children, the, and they're staying sober one day at a time. And so that change was subtle in I totally got rid of the drinking and using, completely got rid of that. Now I had to start over and I had to fit myself in society. And I found challenges because I didn't know who I was and I was learning how to be honest, right? And, and, and being honest, like there's no person that's just honest, right? Maybe a monk or something, right? But outside of that, it's like, I was learning how to live life one day at a time. You rewind, uh, there was about five to six years where I was drinking and using, and I stopped that maturity growth, right? I wasn't participating. I was participating partly, but most of the time I was loaded and, and missing all those little things. And so in starting over, it's like I had to slow down and try and live in today, right? Yeah. And that was the start and the start of that foundation of becoming somebody that I thought I never could be and changing the person that I was because we're not, we're not judged on what we think. We're judged on how we act. And 
you know, if we're getting arrested for DUIs, then we're an alcoholic and we're driving drunk. And these are the consequences. And so all of a sudden I had all these consequences and I knew inside I was a good guy. I was caring, loving, kind, but I didn't know how to practically apply that. And so I had to learn how to do that. And I learned how to do that through working those 12 steps, one step at a time and learning how to live life without a drink or drug and, and being present. Mm-hmm. And that was the change. That was the change, the start of the change. And then went on, you know, these last, uh, 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 15 and a half years. Yeah. So that was 15 and a half years ago, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, so when you start, I think that's a fascinating kind of turn of events when you're like, I need to get honest and you kind of just bared your truth. Those first mm-hmm. few days of being sober, um, and things started lining up for you instead of going against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you remember taking from each of those honest experiences by being fully honest with who you were at that time and having people want to help you instead of want to, you know, lock you up and throw away the key? Well, I, I realized that it was much more challenging to be honest, but I had no option. I had no option to lie or cheat anymore because I had realized that it wasn't working and I was ready to take those consequences. Um, and there was lots and lots of little experiences that I had, like I was tested. Um, I remember, uh, the plumbing company did some overnight jobs on Smith's and my first overnight job, cause I had worked overnights before they were like, Hey, are you willing to work overnights? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I went on the job and the first job we went to, uh, it was in the pharmacy in the Smiths. We were digging a trench uh, to uh, redo this uh, plumbing for this toilet. And the, uh, uh, the pharmacist was there and it was overnight and he just came to keep an eye on things because we were in the pharmacy. And he asked if he could take the sink that we were getting rid of. And, you know, the next day I asked my boss, I came to work the next night and he was like, okay, well, I'm going to take the sink out. So he took the sink out and I was left there by myself in that trench. And I looked right in front of me and there was a whole bunch of bottles of liquid Loratap just sitting in front of me. And it was like my first test. And I was in my first 30 days of sobriety. And I looked at that and I thought, man, I got to get back to work. So I just started digging until that guy came back. And as soon as he came back, I was like, thank God he came back. And I built trust with myself that I wasn't going to take that bottle of liquid Loratab and become the person that I used to be. And so like I had little tests like that. I also, I had a boss who would uh, occasionally smoke pot and I was nervous. Like he smoked pot around me and, you know, he'd asked me if I wanted any and I, Oh no, no. But what I needed to do was learn how to be honest and say, Hey, listen, man, uh, you can't smoke pot around me. You can, I can't be within 10 feet of somebody that has a controlled substance or I could go to prison. And, you know, I wasn't able to be completely honest with him, but I was able to turn down the pot, Yeah, you know? And it's like, um, so I slowly had to become a little bit more honest and there was repercussions for not being honest, you know, because then people would step on my boundaries 
And so those things started to slowly build. And I, you know, um, I started learning uh, jujitsu and um, all of a sudden the spark that I had back when I found martial arts the first time was back. You know, I was in my first year of recovery. I was working. I was giving the state of Utah clean UAs. I was going to all my classes. And, um, you know, the, the wrestling season was coming up again. So I went to the high school and the couple of wrestlers that I was going with were really tough. They ended up both being college wrestlers. So they were kind of like preparing me, you know, and uh, I was learning takedowns and learning all this stuff. And um, I was learning jujitsu and I was mixing those things in. And then I started working on the striking and, uh, one of my bosses was an old kickboxer karate guy. And while he was a karate guy and he had a, uh, this guy, Saka Sim, um, the Punisher, he was a pretty famous Muay Thai kickboxer and he came to Utah Well, he had trained Muay Thai, uh, with this guy. And so he was like, Hey man, I can, I can hold the tie pads for you and teach you how to punch and kick and knee and elbow. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. And I already had a pretty extensive kicking background, but the punching, the kneeing and elbowing was new. And so I just was fascinated with it. So we started doing that. And then he's like, by the way, I own a little gym. And he said, I would love for you to come in and teach the wrestling and jujitsu side of things. And I was like, okay. And so that's kind of where that started. And we had a little partnership in this little, this little gym and man, I just, uh, I started competing in jujitsu, uh, on Saturdays, we had this group of, uh, Hispanic guys come in that were all boxers and, and, and some of them were actually, uh, really good. They ended up, one of them ended up being like one of the better pros ever to come out of Utah. And a couple of them were amateur and, um, had won the, the state golden gloves title and the regional golden gloves title and went to nationals. And there's this kid that came in that was about 180 pounds, kind of soft. Uh, and he was like 14 and I was 22, you know, and, uh, like pretty strong, like, uh, you know, I was lifting, I was doing the jujitsu and the wrestling and kickboxing and, you know, this dude, we did three, three minute rounds and he just beat the hell out of me. And I was like, dude, I got to learn some of this boxing stuff. So yeah. I started working with him and his dad and within, you know, six or eight weeks, I took my first amateur boxing match. And then I had nine following. I did two semi-pro tournaments, uh, one in Wyoming, one in Colorado. Um, and then I took two professional boxing matches and I won all of them. And I just, I was just like, and I just, you know, it's like I, I had found it. And now that was about the time that the ultimate fighter came out, you know, a few years earlier. And I knew yeah. like when I watched the ultimate fighter, I watched, you know, I watched, uh, uh, Forrest Griffin and, uh, and, uh, oh, who's the other one? Oh, Stefan Bonner, Stefan Bonner. They're, they're epic fight. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, people were talking about it and I was like, I didn't want to talk about it. I was like, man, if I ever got a shot to be on there, I'd probably win that thing, you know? And like, I never told anybody that, but I just kept it to myself and I just kept working. Right. And I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. I went with the best guys I could find. I went with guys that would submit me and beat me up. The first guy that I like trained jujitsu with, um, his name was Dave Anderton. He he's, he's this great big guy, like 320 pounds. And he just smashed me every day. And then I was like, man, like, what background do you have? And he's like, oh, I did a little bit of wrestling. Uh, later on, I found out that he's the only guy to ever pin Brock Lesnar in his college career, right? Wow, so this yeah. dude was 
a big bad A. And he was really unassuming, really quiet, humble, and he just smashed me. And uh, I started doing jujitsu tournaments and like, you know, I went beginner, intermediate, advanced, advanced, absolute. And then I competed against like some really good guys and I started putting wins together. I'd only had a couple of losses. And basically like I just completely left recovery in, in the mirror. Uh, I would do the things that I had to do for the state, you know, go to the meetings and I got a little bit of it. And then, uh, my, my, my goal was to make it to the UFC. Yeah. And so everything else, like my job went second. And so, you know, it's like I was doing chin-ups on the job and like doing like workouts, not doing work, but you know, like I was doing what I needed to do, but then I would like be, you know, carrying pipes around and doing chin-ups with my bag, you know, and, and my coworkers are like, dude, like, I don't know what you're doing, man. And, you know, I wasn't a great employee. I was on the job, but I was using the job to do training. <laughs> and then after the, you know, training, I would go to training and, um, you know, I put, I put together like, uh, 10 amateur boxing matches and, and two pro, uh, I competed in roughly a hundred competition jujitsu matches. Right. And, um, then I decided to take my first MMA fight and it was in grand junction, Colorado. I went out, I beat the guy, they raised my hand. I didn't even look at the crowd. I, I just raised my hand and I was, I went down and I, I wrote notes of what I needed to improve on. Right. And I was just overly passionate and I knew I was going to do whatever it took to make it. And I knew inside that I was going to make it no matter what. But in saying that, uh, my recovery came second. Now, I was told in some of those first meetings I went to, if you, if you put your recovery first, everything that comes second will be put first class. So being a person that needed recovery, if I put my recovery first, Everything that comes second will be put first class. So now I put my fighting first and training first and preparation first and everything else was put second. But right? it still worked was, out for you. It's yeah, it still worked out. But I tell you what, man, I had, uh, I had, uh, there was repercussions for that. So I got a call from the same kid that gave me the Percocet several years earlier. Right. And he said, Hey court, you're doing really well. Um, I need to get sober too. And I was like, all right. So I called the guy who was helping me with the program and he suggested to not hang with the people you used to hang with. Um, but if you want to invite him maybe to a meeting, then go ahead and invite him to a meeting, but don't, whatever you do, don't you, you know, if you hang out in a barbershop, you're going to get your hair cut. Yeah. If you hang out with people you used to use with, you're going to get loaded. That's what happens with us. Let's get sober first and let's, let's work. And at the time I had not completed that 12 step program. I was in the middle of it. So I was suggested not to give suggestions. I was suggested not to give advice, not to hang out with the people, go to work, go do your UAs, do everything that you're supposed to be doing, um, you know, and follow the rules. And, you know, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to listen to that. I, uh, I thought that I could help him and you can't give that, what you do not have. And so I went and I picked him up. Um, he ended up, uh, getting loaded. I was frustrated with him. I took him back to his house. We got into an argument. Um, he said, you know, you're the drug addict, not me. His mom overheard the conversation. He was living at home. He was supposed to be sober. 
And she threatened to kick him out. And then he made up a story about me, like beating him up and I was on drugs. And so she called the cops and the same cop who was responsible for me being alive and had arrested me multiple times, showed up to my house and said, Hey court, what's going on, man. I haven't seen you for several months. And I said, I know I'm sober, man. I'm doing really well. I'm working, following my plane advance. And he said, you know, were you at this Brady kid's house? And I said, yeah, I went there to try and help him. And I didn't want to throw him under the bus. So I didn't, you know, and he said, well, I'm sorry, man, but get your things together. I have to arrest you. And I was like, for what? And he said, entering his house with the intent to harm him. Burglary, felony burglary. And I had the felony drug charges and some other charges in a plea in advance. And I knew for a fact that if I got charged for something else, I was not only going away for whatever I got charged for, but to the fullest extent of what I was in my plan of advance. And I couldn't say anything. I said, okay. And I got in that car. I had to call my boss and tell him I wasn't going to be to work. And, you know, a couple of months before that, I told you that my girlfriend had left. She moved to Russia to teach English. Well, she came back from Russia and I was, I was sober. We ended up, uh, in the same, uh, bowling alley, um, with different people. And I saw her, we, we reunited, we started hanging out. We sparked that old, like, uh, love. And, you know, it's like, I had so much going on. Um, I had a little baby on the way, uh, I had everything to live for. And, like I had asked her to put me in prison. Now the last thing I wanted to do was go to prison. All of a sudden, man, I reunited with my high school sweetheart. I had a baby on the way. Um, I was sober. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And I went there genuinely to try and help him. But this is what happened. And I was devastated. Um, absolutely devastated. I had, uh, my first two or three fights I had won. Um, I thought I was on my way. I thought I was on my way. And then now I have this and, um, you know, I had a couple of meetings with a court appointed attorney cause I didn't have any money, you know, and the charges were dropped. Uh, the city dropped the charges and then the state picked them back up because of my priors. And, you know, the court appointed attorney said, dude, you should plead guilty to lesser charges. You know, your mandatory minimums, you'll only go away for seven or eight years, maybe. And I said, no, I'm not going to. I said, this is the first time I've been arrested and I didn't do it. I genuinely went to help this guy. Um, I got out and I did the next right thing. What I was taught in that 12 step program, I, I, I started going back to the meetings because I wanted to be there, not because I was just court ordered. You know, I got a list of every meeting I went to just to prove that I was going to meetings and doing all the things I was supposed to be doing. I went to work. I went to the gym. Uh, I hung out with my girlfriend, uh, you know, and it was like there was all this chaos going on. And in the back of my mind, I knew I needed to show up to the gym every day, no matter what. And I needed to work my hardest. I took two more fights and then uh, I had signed to fight Jeremy Horn. It was like my fifth or sixth pro fight. There was no way in the world that that would have happened now. Mm -hmm. um, but the commission, you know, he had like a hundred fights. He just fought. I think he had just submitted Chael Sonnen and had just fought Chuck Liddell for the light heavyweight title. And I had like five professional MMA fights. 
you know, and, 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 and to be, uh, to be honest, like three or four of those guys fought in the UFC had right. had tons of fight. And so like, don't get me wrong. Like I was well-prepared. I had beaten like two or three, like really good jujitsu guys who are really good now, um, competing on a world stage. Uh, so, so like, don't get me wrong. Like I was competing at a high level and I was doing well, but I was still new to it. And I had signed to fight Jeremy Horn and season seven of the ultimate fighter. Sorry. Season seven of the ultimate fighter came on and I went and tried out for it. And I had my poster of Jeremy Horn, me fighting Jeremy Horn on this main event card. And, uh, I went through their tryouts and basically I didn't get a call back because I was just like everybody else. I didn't tell them anything about the sobriety and tell, I was like, this is my last chance. This is what I need to do. I deserve to be here. You know, like every other guy says yeah. at the time. And, uh, I came back, um, and I went to a jury trial. Um, and I, I stood up and I told the story. I just told you, I went to help my friend and I dropped him off. We got into an argument. I left and then I got arrested and, uh, I was found not guilty on all charges. Um, had I been convicted, I would have got out two Octobers ago. Wow. So I would have had my first son. I wouldn't have been married. I wouldn't have had my second or my third son. And I wouldn't have had my 23rd fight in the UFC. Right. So it's kind of like, I decided to quit that job um, and focus on training. I went and I fought Jeremy Horn and I lost the decision, but I went out to fight him to see if I could compete, not to beat him. And after I got done, I was like, holy shit, I think I could have beat him. I need to put everything into this. So I married my wife. We moved down to Utah County with the only college that had division one wrestling. And I started harvesting wrestlers off the team. I was training at a gym here. And I worked at the gym. Uh, I did side work at the gym. I had a student that owned a bunch of commercial properties. I did plumbing side work for him. I did whatever it took. I gave myself two years to make it, right? And if I didn't make it in two years, I was going to go back and be a commercial plumber. I fought everybody that I could fight. Um, I got to a point where I could not find a fight. I didn't have a manager, but I couldn't find a fight. And I had I had got offered to fight um, uh, Little Noguera in like fury fight or jungle it was a fight in uh brazil yeah it was like eight grand and i was like oh absolutely i'll take that and at the time i had alex stiebling training with me he was the brazilian killer and i was beating him in the in the room and like i had vast improvements and all of a sudden i had three years of sobriety i was married i had a son i had a car i had a job i was making it and i was absolutely miserable i tore my, uh, I tore a ligament in my knee. I had to have surgery. I was broke. And, you know, it's like my parents weren't going to take care of me financially. I was completely self-supporting and I went to work post-surgery, like an hour post-surgery. Cause I had to go to work. You know, the rent was due on the first of the month and it was the end of the month. I had my surgery. I got done. I went in there and I was thinking about going home and taking pain pills and, I knew I couldn't. And I, I called my wife and I was like, I think I'm going to need some pain pills. And then after that, nothing happened and somebody showed up and took me to a meeting. And I went to that meeting and I got honest in that meeting. And I said, I have three years sober. I'm miserable. I'm not fighting in the organization. I deserve to be in. I don't want to go home to my wife and son. It's not because I don't love them. It's because I feel like I don't deserve them. I have a shitty car and I'm, I have a 
terrible boss, you know? And like, I met this guy, he was a musician. He was like 10 years older than me. And he said, sounds like you need to work the 12 step program. I got his number. And over the next four months, I didn't take those pain pills. I worked the 12 step program. My attitude and outlook on life changed. I realized I had been completely self-supporting a hundred percent. I'd paid my lawyer fees, my court fines, my restitution. I didn't go to prison. I paid back all the people I owed money to. I got married. I was honestly married to my wife. I stayed faithful to her. I went home and I realized that my son and my wife loved me and I was making it and my car was good enough to get me to and from work. And I had become one of the best MMA fighters in the whole state. And I had a shot to make it. Now, after that happened, I met a guy. He said, uh, hey, you should try out for Ultimate Fighter Season 11. And I said, well, I already tried out. I, I don't know if I'll make it, you know. And he's like, well, you should go try out. And I was like, well, I don't have the money to get out there. This dude showed up with 500 bucks. And he said, I'll book you a flight. And I'm like, dude, I can't pay you back. And he's like, I don't want you to pay me back. And so on a whim, I went out and I tried out, went through the same thing. And the same guy, his name was Craig Polesian, like kind of a, kind of a like little edgy guy. Right. And he's like, well, what makes you different from everybody in here? Let me guess. This is your last shot. You know? And dude, I was at the two year mark where I was going to go back. So <laughs> I was like, I didn't, I didn't I agree with him, but I listened to him. And he said, this is your last shot. This is your last opportunity. You lock everybody in here. And I said, no, I said, the only thing that makes me different is September 9th, 2005, I overdosed on heroin. If I stay sober for another, like, you know, couple of months, I'll have four years of continuous sobriety. And I've got a hell of a criminal history. And so I got some pretty good stories. And they said, great, we like you. Uh, I left. I got a call a couple of days later after I got home. They said, you made it. And I immediately said, hey, let me call you back. I wasn't going to go on, dude. I was deathly afraid to go on because I thought, what if I become famous and I have all this money? What if I get loaded? What if, you know, I mean, all these what ifs. And so I called that guy that took me through the 12 steps and he said, uh, do you think you could better financially provide for your family? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, okay, do you think somebody could possibly benefit by hearing your story of overcoming addiction? And I said, yeah, man, millions of people will watch it. And he said, all right, maybe I ought to pray about it. I prayed, didn't get anything, took an Epsom salt bath. And like that day, my dad said, uh, I thought you weren't supposed to drink. I had a vision of me holding the ultimate fighter trophy up and I like batted it away. And I called the guy back and I knew I had to go and I left, you know, and it's like, um, I was the second to last picked on the show. Uh, my first fight was the toughest fight I ever had. It was against Seth Bozinski. I got dropped. Um, I was the most nervous I'd ever been. I, I walked out into this tiny little room and like, Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Mike Tyson, Lorenzo Fertitta were there, like the most important people you could, you know, compete well in front of. And uh, I wanted out, man. I was like, man, I'd rather be plumbing while I was in the fight. I was like, man, I'd rather be anywhere else but here. I don't want to be here. What am I doing here? And then it's like, after I got dropped, it's like my higher power picked me up and was like, bro, you better start fighting. And so I fought, I won a decision uh, and I made it into the house, you know, and then I got pick to fight the number one pick. I ended up losing a controversial decision. Yeah. You know, I came back and I, I won the next two guys by finish. And then I made it into the finale and like a whole bunch of cool things happened. Uh, I, you know, and it's, you know, rewind back to UFC 57, Randy Couture, Chuck Liddell three, right. I didn't have a coach when I came back. And when I leaned over and told that guy, 
yeah, you'll see me out here in a couple of years. And I was watching Chuck Liddell knock out Randy Couture, you know, little did I know that four years later that Chuck would book my flight and move me into his house. And I was scared. I wasn't going to go on the ultimate fighter because I didn't want to be around Chuck or Tito because I had heard they had had, they were partiers, Yeah, you know, and lo and behold, I didn't have the training necessary to compete yet in the UFC. And there was my opportunity to get trained by John Hackleman and next to Chuck Liddell with like Luke Rockhold and all these top level athletes. And, uh, I went and I found out like, he's the most gentle hearted, kindest, loving individual. And not to mention he had like an accounting degree and he gave me great advice and suggestions on running a business. And, you know, and it's like, and I had a high level training right off the bat and that prepared me for the finale. And then I won the finale. And then after winning the finale, you know, it's like your biggest fight ever. Right. I dedicated my fight to all those who were struggling. And then I was open with my story, but the, the biggest thing is before I went to that house, I went on good spiritual ground. So it didn't matter if there was drinking in there. It didn't matter if I had won or lost, I could have left there sober, no matter what had happened. And even through successes, which people, you know, who aren't in recovery, who have successes and then blow it away, right? Oh, that guy pissed it up against the wall. Why had done that many times? And here I am, you know, it's like, I've had a successful career lengthwise financially. I've supported my family a hundred percent through competing in the UFC. Um, but there's a few set foundations that I followed and it was by somebody who I'd met in recovery, who was an accountant who, you know, specializes in, you know, running a business. And he essentially said, well, here's your budget and this is what you should pay yourself. And so I've followed those things and, you know, it's like, uh, instead of running to extremes, which I do, I've tried to stay like this. Yeah. Right. And in staying like that, um, I've been provided opportunities and I was, I was willing and available to take advantage of those opportunities. Like that officer who was responsible for me being alive asked me to speak like two weeks before I fought Robert Whitaker. So it was like maybe two or three years into my career, maybe four years. I don't know. But I went and I spoke to a bunch of undercover narcotics officers and I shared the story I'm sharing with you. And one of the sheriffs was like, Hey man, you need to come to our high school. So I ended up, they, they were like, we, you know, we can't pay very much. We'll pay you $500 per school. And I was like, Oh, great. Okay. So I went and I spoke at these high schools and it had a profound effect. Like, uh, kids came up to me and asked me, Hey man, I'm struggling. What do I do? And I'm like, Oh, well, this is what I did. And then I found people who were experts in that. And now, you know, here, here it is, uh, you know, nine years or 10 years later. And tonight I'm speaking at a high school, right? I have a high school wrestling team that I'll be speaking to tonight. And, you know, I don't know how many engagements I've done, but several hundred over the last eight or nine years, um, I've spoke to groups in excess of 10,000 students. I've spoke to, you know, like a fortune 100 companies, sales executives, and I've shared my story and I've, I've worked on it. I haven't had a lot of time to work on, you know, the, the speaking portion of it, but I've yeah. done what I can. I've done my best because I'm still a professional athlete and I have a partnership in a gym. And so, and I also have, I have kids and I'm a high school wrestling coach you know, and like, there's lots of funny little stories that I get to use kind of like, uh, 
you know, becoming a high school wrestling coach, you have to have a background check. And of course, my background is flagged, but I am great friends with our attorney general. So I got a letter of, uh, you know, like uh, uh, a letter, uh, a character reference from the attorney general of the state of Utah. And, you know, it's like from the person I was to getting acknowledged on our Senate floor for the contribution to the community. Like, I just think like that is a huge change. You know, it's like, like I said earlier, I've become the person I never thought I could be. Right. And it's, and it's uh, like, I get an opportunity to go motivate a high school. uh, It's a high school wrestling team, their state tournaments this week. Um, And so I'm coming in to talk about overcoming adversity, a little bit of my story from wrestling and training and competing at the highest level. And I could put in little things like how I turned down a joint from Snoop Dogg, right? And it's like, a lot of people would think like, that's a highlight in my career, right? (laughs) Is, you know, I was at a Snoop Dogg concert, the UFC put it on and and Snoop Dogg walked up to me and, and looked at me in the eyes and handed me a joint. And I had to say, I don't smoke weed, you know, and it's like, and that's a highlight being a person in long-term recovery and, and people, you know, when I'm in a high school and, and I say, Hey, listen, I, if I can turn down a joint from Snoop Dogg, maybe today you can turn down a joint from your friend just for today. Right. And then that drums up conversation. Well, wow. You know, and it's like, uh, I've had all these incredible opportunities. Like The first time I did an autograph signing, I was nervous because it was in a bar and I didn't want to go. And I was told like, Hey, you know, we don't go to bars, right. Unless you have good business reason to be there. And I was scared. I didn't have anybody in recovery. Well, it turns out Steve-O was there for the MMA event, the MMA awards. He was an MMA fan. And I, of course, everybody knows Steve-O. So I was like, Hey man, you know, and then come to find out he was open in recovery and I was too. And I was like, Oh, and he, like Steve-O saved me and he doesn't even know this. I I had mentioned to it him a couple of times, uh, you know, in passing, but it's like, um, it's like Steve-O kept me safe at my first autograph signing, you know? And like, who would have thunk that, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh. Like, um, so I've had this incredible, incredible career. Um, I don't know what happened, but over these last like year, year and a half, um, it's like I hit my prime. I'm 37 and I feel better than I've ever felt. Um, I'm, I'm happy. Um, I have all the challenges. Uh, I have a son who's 14 and he's wrestling. He's wrestling in the state tournament this week. He qualified super proud, super nervous, but I'm a high school coach and I'm coaching the student body. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunities I've been given. And I'm so happy that I get to be a part of life that I didn't end up where I asked to be. Um, and I have the opportunity, but it's important for me to remember how bad it was when I started, how bad it was and how challenging it was to recover because I can use those things and turn those to good account to help people who are struggling. And right now, you know, more than ever, like people are struggling with addiction. And, you know, it's hard to talk about it. It's hard to, to help. And then when somebody asks for help, it's almost like it's, 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 it's a big challenge. And 
sometimes you just need somebody to listen to or to talk to. And, you know, I get to be that for a few people. And that has been the, 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 the highlight of my life, you know, well, it's Corey, like, Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. Um, that an incredible story. This is not the last time you're going to come on the show. Awesome. How's that sound? <laughs> Perfect. I feel like you have hours and hours of more stories. Um, I know. And, and we yeah. barely got to like the, the detail of your UFC career. This is kind of what happened when I had Michael Chiesa on the first time we did like an hour plus, and that got to the ultimate fighter finale. Yeah. And I, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then, and then I had to have him back on again to talk UFC career. Yeah. Um, so let's do it, but I got to run, but thank you. Yep. I'm so happy that you're um, still competing and winning in the UFC. Yeah. I mean, to yeah. be commended, you know, at your age and what you've been through in life, just to even get to the UFC, um, love the story. That's why I had to have you on. So thank you for taking awesome. this time. Uh, yep, my love, pleasure. love that you found the consistency, right? Small and consistent instead of big and big and, yep. uh, at the edges, but, uh, so many gems that you just shared with us. And I really appreciate it. Good luck on your talk tonight. Good luck to your son yep, thank in you. the state wrestling tournament. And yeah. uh, I, hope, I hope I'm on the call the next time you fight. When do you think? I mean, obviously you just fought like a month ago. Hopefully, uh, I'm going to ask for June or July. So I would like to, you know, I, I, I feel great. So I'm ready to rock and roll. Yeah. Two, three fights a year, 37 yeah. years old, still winning. Awesome court. Yeah. Have a great awesome. day. Thanks for joining Thank me you. on this. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. See ya. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening to Fitz Nation. Hope you enjoyed that deep dive into the life and career of Court McGee. Quite a story. If you like this podcast, please consider dropping a review and a rating wherever you listen and maybe share it with a friend as well. I'll see you next time on Fitz Nation.